So I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the book of Hebrews. We will be looking this morning at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Though you may wish that we would run through this section of rebuke a bit more quickly, I listened to a sermon this past week where a pastor preached five, chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 20. And I thought, good night. He wouldn't be able to hack at it at Sovereign Grace. But um, we're going to look specifically at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And I won't tell you who it was because he would be able to hack it here. But, um, and I'm going to back up, though, just a little bit to give us a little context and go back to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse, verse 3, since I think these are so closely tied together. But then we will dwell and meditate and reflect upon the first three verses of chapter 6. So let me read that section for you, brothers and sisters. And as I do so, I remind you that what you are about to hear is the word of Almighty God. So let us reverently hear it, listen, and receive it. And may God bless this, the reading and hearing of his word. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Your Word teaches us that the only way we can keep our way before You pure is by guarding it according to your word. And so we pray that you would empower us now to seek you with our whole heart. Let us not wander in our thoughts from your word or from your commandments, but instead this morning may we store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you, for you are blessed forever, O Lord. Teach us your statutes so that with our lips we might declare all the rules of your mouth. And may we delight in the way of your testimonies as much as in all the riches of this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we continue this morning our study through the book or sermon to the Hebrews. And by way of reminder... I want to refresh you as to the situation that the audience who is receiving this sermon, who is hearing this letter, is in. 
Because it's important for us to remember that these were Hebrew Christians who grew up in Judaism, grew up submitting themselves in all of life to the Mosaic Covenant, but then at some point heard the gospel, heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They were brought into the church as they were catechized and baptized and they made a, a good showing in the faith. They, they, they suffered the loss of their possessions with great patience and love, looking forward to the riches that awaited them. But then as this suffering became protracted and lasted longer and longer, some of them began to go back to Judaism. Why did they go back? Because they were being persecuted and, suf- and suffered because Christianity was not a, an acknowledged, recognized religion in the Roman Empire. And so the Romans were persecuting them, unbelieving Jews were persecuting them, and so it was safe to go back to Judaism, which was a recognized religion. And so the burden of the author of the book of Hebrews is to exhort his listeners that there is nothing for them to go back to under the Old Covenant. Because all the types and shadows, the laws, the ceremonies, the offices, were all pointing them forward to the coming of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the reality that those types and shadows were pointing towards. And so for them to go back to the old covenant, as they were once under it, is not for them to go back to something better, but to go back to a greater condemnation. Because they now have a knowledge of the truth in the new covenant that they didn't under the old covenant. And so they would be judged accordingly by God. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is is telling them Jesus is greater than anything in the old covenant in this way and that way. He's just piling up these reasons. And then he takes a break and says, so go on holding fast to these truths that you have initially believed. And He's telling them currently in the section that we're in, starting around chapter 4, about how Jesus is a great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a truth that is rich and is to encourage them. And yet he has to pause at chapter 5 verse 11 in his discourse and say, listen, I know that you guys are like spiritual babies. You're like spiritual babies who I'm trying to prepare this meal for you. And, and you have teeth because you've been taught the basics of Christianity. But because you haven't meditated on them and listened in a godly manner and applied them to your life, it's like you have all the instruments that you need to be able to eat and process and digest this meat. But you don't even have a desire to because you're just content with milk. The milk of the word. The basics. And so he tells them and rebukes them, you're like spiritual infants when at this point you should be adults, you should be full grown. And so he has to stop talking about this glorious truth about Jesus being a great high priest, and he has to rebuke them because he's trying to rouse them to go on to maturity. That's what we see in in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let us go on to maturity. That's his burden in this section and in these three verses. And so what we're going to see this morning then are are three ways that he encourages them and three ways that we're encouraged to grow in spiritual maturity, to grow in Christ's likeness. And first what we're going to see is that we need 
to, to what we need to go on to spiritual maturity is by building on the foundation of the gospel. We'll see that in the first half of verse 1. In order to go on to spiritual maturity, we need to build on this foundation of the gospel that's been laid in our lives by God's grace. But we can't be content of just saying, yep, there's the foundation, isn't that great. Now I'm going to move on with my life and build my foundation elsewhere. And so we'll look at that. Second of all, in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, we'll see that we are to go on to spiritual maturity by trusting in the foundation of the gospel. You go, well, how do I build on the foundation of the gospel? You build on it by trusting in those truths and living your life in light of them in practical ways. We never ultimately move on from them as if we forget those truths that have been laid down in the early days of our Christianity, but we build our lives upon these truths. And then lastly, thirdly, we'll see that we are to go on to spiritual maturity by knowing and acknowledging and rejoicing in the truth that God is the builder, both of the foundation that's laid in our early Christian life and then the building that is placed on top of that. God is the builder. He is the one who does this incredibly gracious, sovereign work in our lives. And here's my prayer this morning. As we look at these things, as we see how the author encourages his listeners to go on to maturity, it's my prayer that we will be spurred on to leave behind our immaturity and allow God's Spirit to continue this work so that we together and individually grow up into full maturity and Christ-likeness. So let's look first then in how we are to go on to maturity by building on the foundation of the gospel. Look at the first half of verse 1 with me. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. I'm going to stop right there. Now, you see, right out of the gate, the author uses that word, therefore. And that's there to tip us off to the fact that he's building on what he just said in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. What did he just tell them? The very unflattering truth that they're like spiritual babies in diapers who can only handle this, this spiritual milk, the very basics of Christianity. And he's not telling them that to be mean or cruel. He's telling them that because he loves them. Again, he's trying to rouse them on to maturity. And since he loves them, he knows that's what they desperately need. That that's what God has called them to. And so he's saying, in light of your immaturity... Let's now go on to maturity instead. Let us move on in light of where you're at now. Here's where the Lord wants to take you. And I find it absolutely fascinating and insightful that he says, Therefore, let us. Let us. What are we seeing there in the author? We're seeing his pastoral heart. He's identifying himself with his listeners. Think about what he just called them. Now, he's not saying he's immature like they are. But what he's saying is, I'm not calling you babies in the faith and then telling you, now go try to figure it out. And then when you're mature, come back to me and I'll teach you the rest of what you need to know. No, as a good pastor, he loves his people. Even the immature ones. And he's saying, I am going to condescend and come alongside of you and walk with you and pray that you will desire to go on to maturity with me. 
Because that's what the Lord wants for you, and that's what I want for you. And so you see this wonderful pastoral example of the, one of the under-shepherds of Christ's flock coming along the sheep and, and bringing them up in the Lord, encouraging them, not saying, I'm above you and I'm, I'm better, so I'm not going to come down and help you come to this kind of maturity, but I'm going to come down and walk with you wisely and lovingly. And notice that he says, therefore let us um, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on. Let us go on. It's this idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing this work. He's the one that is bringing you to full maturity. And so what you're doing in your immaturity is you are resisting and quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to stop resisting that work and allow him to carry you on to full maturity as I walk alongside of you and I teach you these deep truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is this to happen? How is this to happen? Well, he tells us. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, here's the question we should be asking ourselves. What is he talking about when he says the elementary doctrine of Christ? What is he referencing there? Well, I think he's referencing the same thing or talking about the same thing he references back in chapter 5, verse 12. Look back there with me. Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. Now, here's our phrase, the basic principles of the oracles of God. And so I think the the basic principles principles of the oracle of God and this phrase, the elementary doctrine of Christ, are the same thing. And what is it? It's the basics of Christianity. It's the basic gospel message. It's the truths that the church has taught from its earliest days that you can find in documents like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These basics that you need to know, receive from outside of you, from God's Word, because you can't know them by the light of nature or by your own reason. They need to be proclaimed to you, made known to you from God's word. You believe them and you put your your faith and hope and trust in them as God has revealed them. And these are the, the elementary doctrines. Now, what does he mean by you're to leave those things off? Well, we're supposed to cast those truths off and and forget about them? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying to cast them off and forget about them and move on to something else. What he's saying is listen, that's the foundation. And that foundation in your life has been laid. You've been taught these things to the point where you should be able to be teaching other people. And so let's move on and let's not keep laying this foundation over and over and over again, right? You don't learn English by just going over the alphabet again and again and again and again, do you? Now, you need to learn the alphabet as I've studied Greek and Hebrew, one of the first places you start is learning the alphabet because you can't move on from there. Why? Because it's foundational. But if you only ever know the alphabet and you never move on to learning the rules about the language, you're not going to mature. You're always going to sound like a baby when it comes to that specific language. And that's what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying. Like a builder who only ever builds foundations and never puts houses or structures upon it. That's not the end of a foundation. The end of the foundation is for a building to go on top of it. That's a builder I would not recommend that you have build your house or or whatever building you need built. 
Because the end goal of a foundation, as important as it is, is for something to be put on top of it. And that's what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying. The foundation, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we need to know about Him in order to be saved. But then Christian maturity and character and other truths from God's Word are to be built on top of that foundation. And so what they were doing is they were taking these truths, these precious, glorious truths that they'd been taught, and they were neglecting them and taking them for granted. They weren't building their life upon it. They were just saying, yeah, 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 I know those things now, on to something else new. And so what we're being told here is that, that it's not enough to just have the foundation, but to build your entire life upon it. And brothers and sisters, this should resonate with us, shouldn't it? It should resonate with us that, that we're not to abandon the gospel and the basic truths that we are taught in the early days of our Christianity, the, the truths that are taught, and again, like the Apostles' Creed and the, the Nicene Creed, but we shouldn't always just be laying that foundation. We should be moving on to Christian maturity because the, the reality is that we're never stagnant in the Christian life, are we? It's just like any other relationship in your life, by the way. You know this about your relationships with your spouses and your friends and your children. They're either progressing or regressing. There's no coast. There's no stagnancy. If it's not progressing, it's regressing. If it's not regressing, then it's progressing. And that is exactly the way it is in our relationship with the Lord. And that is the, the important truth that the author is trying to remind his listeners of. So here's the question. All right, great. So we're to build on this foundation of the gospel but how do we do that? What does that actually look like? Well, the author goes on to tell us in the second point, we are to go on to maturity by trusting in the foundation of the gospel. And what we have here, we see that in the second half of verse 1 and into verse 2, and I'll read that in just a second. But what we have here in the, this half a verse and a full verse are six important elementary doctrines that it's highly likely that in the ancient church, as unbelievers were coming into the community of faith, they would be taught these things. They would be catechized in these truths. And then once they knew them and could express them themselves and, and deal with them and they were seeing fruit in their lives, they were baptized and then they were allowed to take communion with the rest of the church body. They were essentially made members of the church. And so what we have here most likely are these basic truths that they would have been taught. And pretty much every scholar commentator that I read uh, throughout church history says these truths can pretty much be coupled together. They come at us in three pairs. And so we have three couplets here. And I want us to look at each one of these so that we can be reminded about what the basics of the faith are. What this foundation of the gospel is and that we might be encouraged um, to, to build our lives upon them and not take them for granted. So what's the first couplet that he lays out here? It's in the second half of verse 1. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now let's deal with repentance of dead works first. They go together, but you'll, you'll see how that is in a second. What is repentance of dead works? Well, let's start by defining what dead works are. Dead works, just to make it really simple, any sinful work that we do in the flesh. Dead works are, are those things which 
proceed from a dead, spiritually dead heart. And so that's why the author of the book of Hebrews uses this term here. Their dead works for two reasons. They're dead according to their nature, again, because they proceed from a dead heart. And that's our spiritual state, brothers and sisters. The canon of Scripture is abundantly clear on this. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not that we have a little bit of life and we can respond if we want to, or there's a little bit of spiritual good that we're able to to exercise and get into God's good graces. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so as a result of that, then what issues forth from our heart? Naturally, dead works. They're dead works. They're works that are, are in rebellion against God and His Word. It's a, and it's a heart that does not and is incapable of conforming itself to God's law. And so we're not able to do any good thing before, the God. We're not, before God. We're not able to pursue Him because our hearts are dead. Our works are dead. So they're not just dead according to their nature, but they're also dead according to their end. Because what is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. And so what do we deserve for these dead works that we naturally do from our hearts when we're in Adam, dead ourselves? It's the just wrath of God. It's spiritual death for all eternity being poured out on us. That is just of God to do. That is what we deserve for these rebellious works and attitudes and words that we say against a holy God. And so, how do we we turn away and repent from these dead works? The only way we're able to do that is when the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Right? Isn't that what uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3? In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Not physically, but spiritually You must be reborn. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And we're a new creation. And we're alive to God. And so repentance is a change in mind. It's a change of one's mind. I used to think this way about God and the world and people around me and my life and why I exist. And and every part of life I thought according to my own reason in accord with the flesh, the world, and the devil. But then when the Holy Spirit changes me, He gives me the gift of repentance and my mind and my heart and my will is changed. And so now where I was once dead to God, I'm alive to God. And so I'm then given the gift of faith and and I receive His Son who paid the penalty for my sins on the cross and fulfilled all righteousness that that righteousness might be counted as mine. And then when He rose from the dead, I rose with Him. And I'm now seated at the right hand of the Father positionally in him so that I have a new status before God. I'm adopted as his child. And now that I'm alive to him, uh, good works issue forth from that faith rather than dead works. Now, repentance is ongoing in our life, isn't it? Because we still continue to sin. We still, our minds still go back to those old ways. There's this struggle between the flesh and the devil. And so what we see then is faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. That's the entirety of the Christian life is is faith and repentance. Repentance of dead works and faith towards God in all that He's given us in Christ and all that He tells us in His Word. And so, here's the point. The Holy Spirit, when He brings about true repentance in you, there will be true faith as well. And when there's true faith, there will be true repentance as well. You can't have one 
without the other. And that's why this is so central to the message of Jesus when he shows up in his earthly ministry, right? What does Jesus say in in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand, so repent and believe. Same message that the apostles preach, isn't it, in the book of Acts? We're cut to the heart. What do we do? Repent and believe. This is the the bread and butter of basic Christianity. This reality that, that when we're dead and lost in our transgressions and sins, we're brought to new life. And that life is made manifest in this gift of repentance and this gift of faith. It's, it's miraculous that God has done this to us. And we should never tire of reflecting upon it and rejoicing in it. And it should, it should result in, in real fruit in our lives. And so that's what the, the uh, author of the book of Hebrews is saying here. You need to remember this, that this is a basic elemental principle of the gospel. And, and you're, you're not building your life upon it. You're not trusting that this is actually true. That God has done this in your life. And so you're weak in your repentance and you're weak in your faith. And you need to reflect on this and trust that this is what God has done in your life. So that's the first couplet. Let's look at the second couplet in the first half of verse 2. Somewhat a bit more mysterious. He says, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. Two important truths that they were to be catechized in before they were brought into membership of the church were instructions on washings and the laying on of hands. Now let's deal with the first one, instructions about washings. What in the world is that about? Well, you can see there, if you have this note in your Bible, that it can also be translated baptisms. Now, the Greek scholars tell me that that this is a very unique word. It's not the typical word used in the New Testament for baptism. And so it's something unique that's being talked about here. And the fact that it's plural has confused a lot of scholars. They're like, well, baptisms, what are people being baptized multiple times? What exactly is going on here? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. It may be simply the, the Jewish ceremonial washings that these Hebrew Christians would have been used to, right? In the Old te- uh, Covenant and even in the, the New Testament, we see the Jews being given to these ceremonial washings of utensils and, and their hands before they eat and all of these things. Maybe it's talking about that. Maybe it's talking about there were different kinds of baptisms in the early days of Acts. Remember, there was John's baptism, Um, and other old covenant baptisms. And so are they talking about that? I think it's really quite simple. There may have been clarification on all those other washings or baptisms, but I think here's what's most important. They were to be instructed in how to think about baptism in the new covenant, in the light of Jesus's incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This completely changes their understanding of baptism. And so what were they to understand about new covenant baptism? They were to understand that it's a sign, an external sign showing an internal reality that they have fellowship with Jesus, the Messiah, in both his death on the cross on their behalf, they died with him, and in his resurrection when he rose to newness of life, they rose to newness of life. And as a result, they live a new life characterized by good works characterized by the character of Christ himself. And this only makes perfect sense because in in regeneration and in baptism, God has placed his name. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have placed their name upon 
God's people so that we now belong to him and live our lives for him and for his glory. So that's what I think the instructions about washings is. What about laying on of hands? This again seems a little bit mysterious. We know that throughout the scriptures, uh, the laying on of hands was a practice that happened. Think about Jesus blessing the little children. Uh, Think about Jesus and the apostles healing people. They would typically lay their hands upon them. Think about people being ordained for ministry or a particular mission on behalf of the church. Hands were laid upon them. So we have these various options. But here's what I think it's actually talking about. I think what it's talking about is we remember early in the book of Acts when the gospel was proclaimed to Gentiles and they received the gospel and they believed. You remember what the typical practice was. The apostles would go and they would lay hands on these Gentile peoples and they would then receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is vitally important because this is a new covenant promise that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh after Jesus, the promised Messiah, accomplishes everything necessary. The Father gives him the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then he pours it out on all flesh. And how is he doing that? Through the laying on of hands of the apostles on these Gentiles. The Holy Spirit's now coming to Jew and Gentile alike. That's what we mean by all flesh. And this would have been a vitally important truth for them to understand. And so they're being instructed in this. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how they're being brought into the new covenant community. And so they're to live their lives in light of these truths. It changes the way you make decisions and live your life on a day-to-day basis. And so he's reminding them, this is the foundation that you are to build your life upon. Trust in these truths. That God has graciously done these works on your behalf. So what about the third couplet? The third couplet's at the end of verse 2. He talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, this is hinted at uh, kind of vaguely in types and shadows, and yet clearly in some ways at the same time, not as much clarity as we have in the New Covenant, but in places like Psalm 16, Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 12. And then obviously Jesus teaches these truths as well. We see them most clearly in John's Gospel, places like John 5, 28, and 29. Uh, We think about John 11, verses 25 through 26. Jesus tells Martha uh, after Lazarus dies and he's showing up to raise him from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus clearly taught this. And the apostles clearly taught this. This was central to their, uh, their message of the gospel, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we will raise from the dead. And here's the basic truth that's being taught. Believer and unbeliever alike, when they die, their soul is separated from their body. And they go to one of two places. This is still true today, by the way. (laughs) The believer's soul goes to the intermediate state to be with the Lord, and their body remains here on earth and decays. And the unbeliever, when they die, their body is separated from their soul and goes to hell. The believer goes to bliss with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the saints who've gone before. The unbeliever goes to eternal punishment under the wrath of Almighty God for their sin and their rebellion. But then, when Jesus comes back, what happens? The souls of men are reunited to their bodies in this resurrection of the dead. 
And so as, as hard as this is to believe, hell gets worse for unbelievers because now they have a body in which to experience it. And heaven, in some way, shape, or form, gets better for believers. And what happens? Jesus, after when he comes back, there's, there's a judgment, isn't there? We will have to give an account for all the deeds done in the flesh. For, for believers, we have sinned, surely. That will be forgiven on Christ's behalf because he died on the cross, rose from the dead, fulfilled all righteousness for us. And unbelievers, since they rely on their own righteousness, will then be cast into hell. So what's eternal judgment? It's not that this judgment is forever ongoing, as if Jesus is constantly just judging you know, believers and unbelievers. It's that it's final. The results of this judgment that Jesus brings about, believers will be in heaven forever, unbelievers in hell forever. And these are vital truths for us as believers to think about. I think that we, as believers in the West, are very anemic and immature ourselves because we don't spend much time reflecting on them, do we? Why? Because things are pretty good. We live in Disneyland. You understand, historically, we are an anomaly in the church. Historically, the church has been persecuted and marginalized in, in significant ways. Folks, we live in Disneyland comparatively. And so why would we be thinking about the eternal state? Why would we be thinking about bliss with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We're constantly tempted to be thinking about the here and now. Now, in fairness, mankind has always been tempted to think about the here and now. But I think we have unique temptations because we just have such an easy, comfortable life. And yet, what the author of the book of Hebrews knows is, listen, in order for you to endure this kind of suffering and persecution, you've got to understand, regardless of what they take away, regardless of what they can do to your body, remember what's coming at the end of all things. Perfect, unbroken fellowship with the triune God in a sinless state, co-heirs with Christ. All things are yours. Let them take them away now. They will be yours at the end of all things. And this body, they may ravage it. You will receive a glorified body. Like the body that your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ received after his was ravaged by sinful men. And so they have to, they're not, you see, if they were clinging to this truth, if they were trusting in it and building their life upon it, they would not be as tempted as they are to abandon Jesus and all the riches that are in him for the types and shadows of the old covenant. And so his charge is, you're forgetting about these basic truths. You know them, but you've not trusted in them. You know them intellectually, but you've not built your life upon them. They don't have import in your day-to-day -day life. And brothers and sisters, is this not true of us in many ways? The pockets of immaturity that you can see in your life I guarantee you they're, they're not because you need to know some hidden, deep truth that you're going to find in the next Christian book that you're going to read. It's because you're not leaning the full weight of your body and soul on these basic truths that you were probably taught in the earliest days of your Christianity. And that's what the author of the book of Hebrews is, is telling his listeners here. And we need to hear it. There's a reason why it was recorded, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and is being preached now to us this morning. We need to build on this foundation of the gospel by trusting these truths and letting them 
have import into every decision that we make in our lives. This is our life. What God has done for us in Christ and the application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. And the immaturity that's there is because we're not trusting in these truths. And so that's why the author of the book of Hebrews says, you guys should be way further along than this. I want to teach you these glorious truths about Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and yet you haven't even trusted yet the way you need to, the basics. And so you don't even have a desire to hear these truths about Jesus. That's the extent of your immaturity. So you need to not just build on the foundation that's been laid. The way you build on it is by trusting in those foundational truths. And next, we need to see that in order for us to go on to maturity, we need to know, thirdly, third point from verse 3, that God is the builder. We need to rejoice in this truth, that God is the builder of the foundation of the gospel that's been laid in our lives, and He's the builder of that structure, maturity, character that looks like Christ, understanding more about God's Word. He is the one that builds both the foundation and the structure. Now look at verse 3 so I can show this to you. And this we will do if God permits. What? What is he going to do? What will we do together, author of the book of Hebrews, if God permits? He's saying we will go on to maturity. And the way that that will happen is by me teaching you these, these truths about Christ as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That will happen, but only how? If God permits. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I've got this desire to teach you these truths. I have this God-given desire to see you mature, to leave behind your infantile ways spiritually, and to grow up. I want to teach you these truths. I want to see you trust in the basic things that you were taught the basic gospel truths, so that we can move on to these things. And yet, what does he say? He says, I have this responsibility as a teacher to instruct you in these ways. And yet, even though I have this responsibility and I burn with a passion to do it, I also have to acknowledge this will only happen if God permits it. What does he mean by that? I think twofold. First of all, I may die before I can finish writing this sermon. The Lord has to sustain me physically so that I can communicate these truths to you. You may say, that's, that's, that seems a little basic and a little extreme. Brothers and sisters, we should all be living our lives that way. Understanding the Lord is the one who sustains us physically so that we can do anything that He's called us to. And so we'll only be able to do those things if He permits if he sustains us and we don't die before we get to them. Second of all, he's saying the Lord is sustaining me spiritually so that I will faithfully teach you the truth and not err from it to the left or the right. If left to my own devices, I will. But if the Lord sustains me so that I faithfully carry out my responsibility and my calling to teach you these things, to come alongside of you and spur you on to maturity by rebuking you and teaching you these truths, the Lord has to sustain me to that end. Otherwise, I won't be able to do it. I will fall away myself. And so you, what we see here is, is a living example or model of how James tells us to live before the face of God. You don't have to turn there. 
But let me read for you a passage I'm sure you're familiar with, but I can never hear it enough times. So I'm going to read it for myself and for you. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. James tells his listeners, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's writing to Christians who are business people saying, We've got this business plan and we're going to carry it out and we're going to sell it for this much and we're going to make this much money. Much like the preacher who looks at his year and says, we're going to do this and we're going to preach this book and we're going to do that and here's the spiritual result that's going to come about. What? Who, Who do you think you are? That you can bring about certain results. Now, he's not saying it's a bad thing to have plans or desires. The problem is to, to, to pretend like your plans or desires are a certain thing that you can control the success or failure of the results of the outcomes. So James goes on to say, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know tomorrow. God does. But why does God know tomorrow and you don't? Because what is your life, James says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. God, when we talk about His glory, it's because God is weighty. God is solid. God is. God um, is and is and is to come. He's always been. He's never had a beginning. He will never have an end. Whereas you very clearly have an ending, a beginning and you very clearly have an ending. And you're like a, a mist. Your relative uh, weight, weightiness compared to God is that you're like a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow, and yet God always is. And so who are you to pretend that you're like God, saying, I can bring my will about? Your will is not ultimate, His is. And so that's what the author of the book of Hebrews is embodying here. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Your plans should always be followed up with, Lord willing. If God permits, it's pure arrogance to say anything else. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is modeling this and just acknowledging humbly this reality. And he's saying, we'll go on to do this. If God permits, I will teach you these things. But then second of all, I think he's saying that you will go on to maturity if God permits. I may be rousing you now by God's grace and calling you spiritual babies, and you will go on to this maturity, and I will carry you to this maturity. The Holy Spirit will do this in you if God permits. In other words, they have a responsibility. The author has a responsibility to preach these truths. They have a responsibility to hear and listen and receive and appropriate and meditate and reflect upon these truths. And he's saying, the only way that I can be sustained to preach them and the only way you can be sustained to receive them and be conformed to them is if God permits. If he he does this work in you, if he works that in you, Philippians chapter 2, so that you are then able to work that out. The only way you're going to become spiritual adults is if God does this. You have a responsibility but only God can actually bring it about. And thus we come to one of the most incredible mysteries in the Christian faith, don't we? God is completely sovereign, and I am responsible. Those two things are not enemies. They're not actually in conflict with each other. We just can't work all of that out. And so we need to shut our mouths and say glory and honor and praise to God 
And we're to be encouraged by this as well and humbled by this reality that only God can bring about these results. And by application, we should also be committed to praying for each other. I need to be praying for you that the Lord would take this word and make it effectual in your life as you hear it. And you need to pray for us as your pastors, as those who preach the word to you. That the Lord would sustain us physically and spiritually so that we faithfully do so. And all of us together have to pray to the Lord to cause the other to grow because the Lord is the one that brings the increase. Yes, He uses means. Don't hear me saying other words. We are to, to be in the Word. We are to pray. We are to be fellowshipping. We are to be evangelizing. Doing the things that the Lord commands us because He uses those means to bring about growth. But if you think that you can somehow chart out your spiritual growth, I remember the early days of my Christian life where I thought that could happen. It was a joke. The Lord graciously humbled me and said, I am the author and perfecter of your faith. Not you. So yes, make use of these means. But be on your face in prayer that I would use them to change you and sustain you and bring you to maturity. So we should be humbled, brothers and sisters. We should be moved to prayer, understanding that this maturity is what the Lord desires for us. And so how are we resisting that? We need to ask ourselves, how am I resisting the maturity the Lord wants to take me to? Because we're not just here to build the foundation over and over and over and over again. We're to trust in those foundational truths of the gospel. Our entire life is found in those truths. And then as a result, that maturity flows from that. As we learn the word and we grow in character. And we should be humbled knowing the Lord is the one who laid the foundation and the one who builds the building. And so brothers and sisters, let us, as we hear this rebuke about our spiritual state, receive it with the intention in which it is intended. Because who is the one that is delivering the rebuke? Yes, he's using me as the means. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And his intention for you is love. The same love that caused the nails to be pierced through his hands. And the wrath of God to be poured out upon him rather than you. So receive the rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ. Lovingly coming to you. Graciously coming to you. And finally, let us together... Press on to maturity with confidence that our gracious triune God will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are humbled at the truth that you have saved us and redeemed us. We know we're undeserving in and of ourselves and we tremble to think about where we would be if you had not saved us from our hellbound race and the dead works that we were committed to in our spiritual deadness. But we're thankful that you've brought us to life, given us the gift of faith. And we repent of the ways that we have been ungodly listeners, have not meditated on the truth of your word, and as a result have resisted the work of your spirit in us. We pray that 
he would have his way with us. That we would yield ourselves up to you. Not under any pretense that, oh, we're all of a sudden now going to become perfect. But that we might go on toward maturity. That you might use us for your glorious ends. We do not want to get in the way of what you're doing, but be your willing vessels, your willing servants, so that you might be glorified and honored and that your gospel might go to the ends of the earth. Use your word, we pray, to that effect and to that end. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.